Well, good evening. My name's Tyler. I'm the lead pastor of Outfitter Church, and I'm happy that you're here. If, if you're a member of our church or a regular attender, thanks for coming to exalt the Lord with us. Um, if you're a guest for the first time, we're glad you're here. And whether you're here to exalt Christ or whether you're here to explore who this Jesus is, I'm excited to introduce him to you tonight. And I'm excited to study the Word of God with you tonight. And, and my prayer is always that God would strengthen our church and that he would save the lost. And so if if you're here and you love Jesus and you follow him, I pray that you're encouraged tonight. If you are exploring who he is, I pray that God would open your eyes and help you to believe and follow him tonight. Okay? I want to start with a story. Um, in the movie Fifty First Dates, it's an oldie but a goodie. Adam Sandler and Drew Barrymore. Adam Sandler goes to the Hookie Lao Cafe. And he falls madly in love with Drew Barrymore, whose character's name is Lucy. And he falls in love with Lucy. They have a great first encounter. Then the next day she comes in again and he, uh, he begins to put the moves on her just as he had the day before and she was really interested in him. But this time she immediately like chastises him and calls him a creep, tells him to leave her alone. And he's really confused at what happens. Well, the restaurant owners explain to him that she has a short-term memory loss from an accident she was in as, uh, and so a few years back. And so she thinks every day is the same day, which ends up being her father's birthday. Now, Adam Sandler has fallen so deeply in love with Lucy that he's like, I'm bound to determine to figure out a way to make her remember me or I'll remind her every day and win her heart again. Now this leads to some hilarious moments throughout the course of the movie and the movie ends by her actually somewhat remembering him. She can't remember who he is but she dreams about him and she's a painter and so she paints all these pictures of him and so he knows that he's made that connection. Anyways, they get married. It's beautiful. Beautiful story. Love that. Great storyline. Uh, but in that movie, you just kind of ask yourself, could you imagine how exhausting it must be for someone you love to forget you every day? And, you, and, and every day he would either do a, a journal or a video or some way to remind her of who he was and that she didn't have to be afraid of him, that she actually loves him, and this, that's in the others. And, and, and so, but you ask the question, could you imagine how exhausting and sometimes how emotionally wrecking that would be for someone to forget who you are every single day? The reason I tell that story is that in Mark chapter 4 and 5, or in Mark chapter, the last part of Mark 4, and uh, the beginning of chapter 5, we see yet again the 51st states of the disciples, they forget who Jesus is. And this is the first time we really see Jesus, or maybe first or second, we see Jesus actually grow irritated with his disciples. And so join me in Mark chapter 4, verse 35. Now we're in Mark 35 through 520. We're going to break it up into two different sections. Um, if, you, if you do not have a Bible or you don't own a Bible, we have Bibles stacked on the inside of the rows, and that is our gift to you. We believe every word of God is inspired and perfect, and it teaches us how to follow Jesus. So we want you to have a Bible if you do not have one of those. Before I preach, I really, really, really just have to encourage you, church. 
We don't have a Bible reading plan this year. Our Bible reading... our Bible reading plan, kind of what we're as a church trying to commit together to do, is to read the passage that I, we will be preaching on throughout the week before we preach on it. It's on the back of your bulletin. Um, and so my encouragement to you is if you're not reading the Bible, read that passage throughout the week, okay? Um, or if you have the ability to add it to your Bible reading plan, I encourage you to. Just because we're tackling a lot of Scripture at one point, and it's easier for you to pick up and run with us if you've already been working through it throughout the week. So that's my encouragement. Uh, I thought about that multiple times uh, the last couple of days that I was just like, man, I hope our church is reading it. But if you're not, I encourage you to pick up with us if you can. Okay? So read with me in Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41. On that day when evening had come, he told them, let's cross over to the other side of the sea. So they left the crowd and took him along since he was in the boat. And other boats were with him. A great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking over the boat, so that the boat was already being swamped. He was in the stern, sleeping on the cushion. So they woke him up and said to him, Teacher, don't you care that we're going to die? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the sea, Silence, be still. The wind ceased, and there was a great calm. Then he said to them, Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? And they were terrified and asked one another, Who then is this? Even the wind and sea obey him. So the first thing that we see when we take away from this passage is that because Jesus has control over the natural world, because Jesus has control over the natural world, the disciple must trust him in chaotic circumstances. That's what we really believe that Mark, through the inspiration of God, is is really pushing this point. Jesus is in control of everything. All the natural things that are taking place, the wind, the waves, the the ocean, he's in control of it. And therefore the disciple must trust in him amidst chaotic circumstances. So let's take a look at what's really going on. They finished doing some ministry. Uh, Jesus just preached on uh, bearing fruit. And actually this is the first time, other than their commissioning, that we really see the disciples get it. They're bearing fruit. They've received the word of the Lord, the good news. And they're showing actions that show that they've really believed and they're following Jesus. And so we see a really good example of the disciples. And in the very next scene, they leave that ministry event and they are going across the sea. It says, on that day when the evening came, they, they went across the boat, in verse 37, a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking over the boat, so that the boat was already being swamped. And so imagine the chaos. Okay? Professional fishermen, they don't get scared over much. Right? We, we, we've got a member in our church that used to do uh, deep sea fishing commercially. Uh, and, and so I know that he's seen some bad storms. And if he was scared on a boat with me, I would know that we're in trouble. Okay? And so these professional fishermen are out on the sea. 
and, and the wind picks up, and the wind picks up so strongly that it's actually picking up the waves and it's throwing them over into the boat. And so you can imagine that they're like, oh my goodness, what's happening? We're in trouble. We're going to die. But where is Jesus amidst the chaotic circumstances? Jesus is asleep on the level below. So this isn't a small boat. This isn't like a John boat, okay? This is a boat. It has two levels and enough room for 13 men to be on it. It's got the 12 disciples and Jesus. So it's a 13, at least a 13-person boat with enough room for Jesus to be downstairs taking a nap. So the storm is bad. It makes me think of all my friends that have ever fished at Pathfinder. And they always say, hey, when the wind picks up at Pathfinder, get off the water because you're going to die. And so I'm like, okay, cool. And so I don't have a boat. No big deal. I, don't, I won't go. So the chaos ensues. The natural world throws everything it has at it. Where is Jesus? And what do the disciples do? The disciples go down to Jesus and they say, Teacher, do you not care that we're dying? Included in we're? <laughs> Sometimes my wife says, we need to take the trash out. I said, do you have a mouse in your pocket? And she's like, what do you mean? I said, you said we. I don't think you're going to help me. So it's going to be me needs to take the trash out. And so I like to say, do you have a mouse in your pocket? Just tell me what you want me to do, baby. And I will probably not. And so anyways, um, I'm still working, okay? I'm a sinner. I'm, I'm trying to take the trash out more. Anyways, that was a completely useless point. Um, but but the, disciples, the disciples come to Jesus and they said, teacher, do you not care that we're all dying? Jesus was sleeping. Now, a lot of people would like to tell you, and at once I even taught, it's because of a long day of ministry, Jesus was so exhausted, he didn't care about what was happening. You know what? I'm, I was wrong. Because if Jesus had accidentally fallen asleep and was missing out on what he was supposed to have been doing already, he would have got up and said, Sorry about that, guys. I was sleeping. I'm up now. Okay. Wind, be quiet. Wave, stop. But he didn't get up and apologize, did he? Which means that he was intentionally sleeping. The sleeping Savior amidst the crazy chaos shows his control. And he wasn't scared. I love what happened. They woke him up. Don't you care that we're going to die? Now, 12, I don't know who you're talking about, but I'm not going to die until I lay myself down. Right? We, we see that the, 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 the book of Mark doesn't end in chapter 4. We see the continued ministry of Jesus in his death, burial, and resurrection. Jesus knows he's not going to die no matter what storm comes. And so when the disciples saw the sleeping Savior, the more righteous thing they could have done is went and took a nap with him. But instead of seeing the sovereignty of their Savior, the control of Jesus over the natural world, they were scared, they didn't have faith, and catch this, this is important, they actually accused him of being merciless. Because you're merciless if you know someone's going to die and you don't stop it, if you have the power to do so. They knew he had the power to do so, but they said, don't you care? 
And so instead of having faith in the sleeping Savior, the sovereign Savior amidst the chaotic circumstances, they insulted him that he doesn't actually care. Church, isn't that sadly what we've done before? We think, man, I just got the call from my boss that I might get laid off. Or, man, they're firing a lot of people in the midst of COVID, and I just don't know if I'm going to keep it. Or, you know, my, my son is, or I'm sorry, my, my child, one of my children is, is going astray in the faith. Or, or maybe my non-believing spouse, my non-Christian spouse seems further away from God than he's ever been or she's ever been before. What am I going to do? In the midst of chaotic circumstances, we oftentimes go, God, where are you? Don't you care? And when we're asking, don't you care, we're not asking nicely. We're insulting him that he doesn't care. As if somehow your struggles and your plight and your afflictions have been lost on him and he forgot about you. What's amazing is Jesus, even being insulted, he gets up, he rebukes the wind, and then he tells the sea to be silent. Now, I know all of you know about wind. Because we live in a place where it regularly blows 60 to 70 miles an hour for a couple of days at a time. You understand the insane power that it took only God stop and the wind stops and half of Casper falls over because we were leaning into the wind to stay up okay but you know the immense powerful only God's strength that could stop the wind and I don't know if any of you have ever been to the beach but even on a calm no breeze day the wind and the waves or if you're in a boat hitting your boat or even your boat making progress through the water it makes noise but it says there was a great storm it's going over the sides of a boat that's holding 13 people and it has a second layer there is a lot of chaos going around the disciples circumstances and Jesus gets up he rebukes the wind he tells the sea to be silent and then the text says there was a great calm there was a great storm. There was a great calm. Church, can I just tell you that Jesus only and Jesus alone has the ability to bring a great calm to your great storm. And, and in those midst of the great storm, in the midst of the, of the outward circumstances of our lives going chaotic, we must trust that Jesus has control over that natural, over the natural world and therefore the disciple must trust him amidst the chaotic circumstances. I don't know what's going on in your life, but we can't forget that it's Jesus that's with us. I do not like flying. As I read this sermon and thought about it, it made me remember of times I need to repent. Flying for me gives me opportunities to forget that I trust Jesus. Okay? I don't like flying. Anytime the plane goes bump, I question God's goodness. Where are you at, God? <laughs> Okay, one time I went on a flight with a pilot 
the pilot was sitting beside me. And so I'm like, man, I don't like flying. He's like, why don't you like flying? He's like, oh, I said, well, I just don't like the bump. And he was like, oh, the bump don't matter. He said, now, if you're caught in a thunderstorm with lightning and there's a lot of bumps, he goes, you're probably in trouble. He said, but if, if it's just wind, it doesn't matter what wind it is. It, the plane can go bump. Wind has never taken down a plane, is what he said. Really? So I'm sitting beside him, and the plane would go bump. And I'd look at him. He's still watching this movie. Or it'd go bump, and I'd look at him, and he's reading this book. He was sleeping. In fact, he was at peace. The man who's qualified to know exactly what every single bump is doing, he's not scared. And that gave me the ability to not be scared. And so church, no matter what is going on in your life, you may think the waves are crashing, you may think you're going to die, but when we look to the Savior, he's sleeping in sovereignty. He is in control of the entire natural world, and we just need to crawl up there and take a nap with him because he is in control of our chaos. He will take us he will make the way. He will take care of us. And we don't have to be scared. The disciples, though, don't get this. And it says they were terrified. Ready? It says, who then is this? Teacher, don't you care? And then whenever it all happened, they go, who is this man? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Mm. Now we see the next passage is meant to be compared to this passage. And so we're going to kind of bounce back and forth uh, with looking at the irony of, of these two passages compared to one another, okay? And so join me as we continue on. Verse five, or chapter 5, verse 1. We're going to read this long passage. They came to the other side of the sea, in the region of the Gerasenes. As soon as he got out of the boat, a man with an unclean spirit came out of the tombs and met him. He lived in the tombs. No one was able to restrain him anymore, not even with a chain, because he often had been bound with shackles and chains, but had torn the chains apart and smashed the shackles. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. Verse 6, when he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and knelt down before him and he cried out with a loud voice, what do you have to do with me, Jesus, the son of the most high God? I beg you before God, don't torment me. For he had told him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Verse 9, what is your name? He asked him. And the demons respond, My name is Legion, he answered him, because we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the region. A large herd of pigs was there feeding on the hillside. The demons begged him, Send us to the pigs so that we may enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd of about 2,000 rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned there. The men who tended them ran off and reported it to the town and the countryside, and people went to see what had happened. They came to Jesus and saw the man who had been demon-possessed sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. 
those who had seen it described it to them, described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs. Then they began to beg him, Jesus, to leave their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged him earnestly that he might remain with him. Jesus did not let him, but told him, Go home to your own people and report to them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So he went out and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and they were all amazed. In verses 1 through 5, or before I move on, what, what we see throughout this. So we, we saw in the last passage, because Jesus has control over the natural world, a disciple, the disciple must trust him amidst chaotic circumstances. In this passage, we see that because Jesus has control over the spiritual world, the disciple must trust him amidst spiritual, or against spiritual afflictions. Sometimes the outward circumstances weigh us down, but then other times it's our internal sin struggles, it's our internal battles, it's the spiritual afflictions, or it's the spiritual afflictions inside the family member or the friend of ours that we long to see saved. But because Jesus has control over the spiritual world, the disciple must trust him amidst spiritual afflictions. In verses 1 through 5, we see the picture very painfully painted for us. This man, and, and I'm going to call him the demoniac, or the demo demon-possessed man. It's, it's kind of, demoniac is what a lot of people call him, because it's shorter than saying demon-possessed man. So this demoniac, uh, this is the first time that, that Jesus actually is going now into Gentile soil. He says he's going to the Gerasenes. And, and everything to the Jew, everything about this story reeks with uncleanness. It's a Gentile who's demon-possessed by a legion of demons. He's cutting himself with stones. He's naked and he's surrounded by thousands of pigs. The Jewish audience that Mark was writing to would have picked up really clearly the very massive difference between a boat with the Messiah and 12 disciples versus Gentile land with a naked, demon-possessed man that's bleeding around a bunch of pigs, which were unclean for Jews. And so we see immediately the two are very different scenes, but they're going to have very different outcomes. So this man lived in the tombs. Oh, and he's in a graveyard of dead people. Okay, that adds even more the uncleanness of this story. And can I just say, some of you, sometimes you walk into this room, or maybe you're watching on live stream, and you think there's no way Jesus would come to you because of what you've done in your life. Can I just tell you, that's a lie straight from the pits of hell. The Jesus of the Bible, the Jesus that redeemed this poor man, disgusting sinner's soul, is the same Jesus that would go to a graveyard with a naked, demon-possessed man, bleeding because he cut himself, surrounded by thousands of pigs that are unclean for a Jew to touch. I don't care what kind of sin or shame or brokenness you found yourself in. Jesus can come and change that for you. But this man was completely hopeless in his inability to fix his situation. 
as you see, the author, Mark, inspired by God, sets the picture very well. This is a man that's been exiled to the graveyards and the mountainsides of their city. He has been chained up and put in shackles. And the only reason that he's where he's at now is because there's no one strong enough to subdue the demonic powers inside of him. He breaks the chains, he smashes the shackles, and he screams and he cuts himself. And so the, the Gentiles in the area said, we got nothing to do for this guy, kick him out. And so the brokenness and the evil of this man's life has now cost him. He's exiled. He's in shame. He's in, he's in isolation all by himself. Completely unable to fix his situation. You know, Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that's exactly where we are spiritually. Ephesians says we are dead in our trespasses and sins. But God, being rich in mercy, makes us alive in Christ. All of us in this story are this demon-possessed man. Our sin has caused us exile and brokenness, and we only have the chance to... I'm, Dad, I'm getting so excited, I'm ahead of my sermon. The only thing that can change us is Jesus. Let's continue on. So we see that he's completely unable to fix himself. Verse 6, when he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and knelt down before him. And he cried out with a loud voice, What do you have to do with me, son of Jesus, son of the most high God? Anyone else remember what the disciples called Jesus when they were in trouble? Teacher. What's the demon-possessed man call him? Son of the most high God. Again, I will say, when a demon is more righteous than you, we've messed up. Oh, but isn't it true, church, that we do fail? What a daily dose of humility. I got a phone call today. The Baptist Press wanted to do an interview about our church, um, about several churches that Wind City planted, um, but also interviewed me, and it was, I was real proud. I got to be the starting few lines of the article, and I got to be the closing lines of the article. I even got to brag about killing an elk. So I felt pretty, pretty proud. The Baptist Press. It's pretty exciting. One of the biggest Baptist publications there is. And I get a text message from a friend a few minutes after he posts it, and he says, Dude, you're in the Baptist Press. You're a big shot. And I said, Yeah, I forgot my Bible to a discipleship meeting today. I'm far from a big shot. And so as I was preparing this sermon, sometimes we think, I'm a child of God. I get it. I'm righteous. I'm better than all my lost friends. But then we, we actually look at our lives with a critical eye. And we recognize that it doesn't take much. It took massive winds and waves. Sometimes it just takes a mist for me to forget that Jesus has been faithful through every storm. Mm. That song we sang today, you've been faithful through every storm. You'll be faithful forevermore. You have done great things. Man, but sometimes it really just takes a wind, or it takes a breeze and a mist for me to forget that Jesus has been faithful through every storm. And so at this point in the text, church, I think we just got to go, Lord, forgive us. Sometimes demons are more righteous than we are. But this demon-possessed man comes to him, and he kneels down. The disciples shake him. Well, don't you care? 
the demons kneel. They call him son of the most high God. And then they says, please don't kick us out of the region. So they kneel, they identify him as Lord, and then they beg him not to use the power he has to kill them. When you look at the two stories, we recognize that we fall so far short as disciples sometimes. And our best response is humility and repentance. Lord, forgive us. Help us to not forget you in the storm. In the storm. But the demon comes, he kneels down, and he says, what's your name? And he continues on by saying, uh, my name is Legion, for we are many. And I don't know exactly how many, but I know that the demons took over 2,000 pigs. So my guess is a lot. The, the legion doesn't really matter. It's just emphasizing that it was a lot of demons. A lot of demonic power. And so they say, please don't kick us out of the region. Apparently they were doing a good job of, of hurting people in that area and they didn't want to leave. And so he says, the demons say, there's some pigs over there. Can we go? And Jesus says, I will allow it. The demons had to get permission from Jesus to do what they were asking him to do. We see the power of God in Jesus. He is God. And so they go into the pigs, and they rush the pigs off the cliff into the sea and kills them. Let me do a sidestep of a point. Church, let's not play with evil. Satan is real. Demons are real. And the demonic powers of evil that we tap into when we sin don't play. There's an old saying, it's not original with me, sin will cost you more than you wanted to pay, take you long, or keep you longer than you wanted to stay. Dang it, what was it? Hold on. Sin will take you further than you want to go, cost you more than you want to pay, and keep you longer than you wanted to stay. The Holy Spirit's been using the scripture in my life whenever I'm tempted to sin. It says the simple, the wise see uh, destruction and they turn and go the other way, but the simple go on and suffer for it. And so when we see sin, only the stupid, and, and, and I, if you don't teach your kids that word, I'm sorry, it, it, it can be a bad word. But the biblical text, the word simple also means stupid. Only stupid people see sin and go, let's keep going. Church, let's not play around with sin. John 10, 10 says, The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Look what it did to the demon-possessed man. He was self-mutilating. He was breaking shackles. He was naked. He was abandoned. He was exiled and isolated, living in shame. And the demons loved it. And then the moment that Jesus kicks them out of his life of tormenting him, they take 2,000 pigs, run them off the cliff, killing all those animals and taking away money from the villagers. All evil wants to do is tempt you to play the game. And once you start playing the game, oh, do they run havoc over you and over me. Church, let's stop trying to play with sin as if it's a cute puppy. Let's recognize it as the grizzly bear that it is, and we will lose every time we play. Let us run from evil, for it only wants to destroy you. 
Sometimes when we think about the power of evil to destroy our lives, we get a little bit discouraged. Oh, but let me show you something awesome in the text. You ready for this? Okay. In the Greek language, I'm not a Greek scholar, but I'm reading a commentary, and he is. He picks up on the military language of what's happening here. First, the demons kneel down. They submit to the military language of being in submission and obedience. What is, my, what is your name? My name is Legion, representative of a group of soldiers in the military. And, he, and they begged him, don't send us out of the region, which is another military term for sending us out. Then it says, they begged him, let us go to those, and it says, he allows it, which was a military command to allow it. Now, ready for this? We're using military language. We have evil versus God. What happens to evil? They drown in the sea. The last time a military attack was seized against the people of God, it was the Egyptians, as God was setting them free from slavery. And how did it go for the Egyptian army? Let me tell you, they drowned in the ocean by the power of God. Any time that something evil tries to take hold of a child of God, they end up dead and the child of God is set free. Church, don't be afraid of evil for we have been set free by the Savior. Even amidst our greatest afflictions, we've been set free and our sin is then drowned and killed behind us. So we see in the first passage that because Jesus is Lord over the natural world, the disciple must trust him amidst chaotic circumstances. We also see that because Jesus is in control over the spiritual world, the disciple must trust him amidst spiritual affliction. But now let's look at the last piece of irony in the text. Verse 18. It says, As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged him earnestly that he might remain with him. Jesus did not let him, but told him, Go! Go home to your, sorry, go home to your own people and report to them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So he went out and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and they were all amazed. Who is the true disciple in all of the passages we've read tonight? The formerly demon-possessed man. Mm, we preached a few weeks ago, Jesus makes the unworthy worthy. This man was really recently possessed by a legion of demons. And he beats the 12 disciples to proclaiming the gospel before they do. Remember, they got commissioned in a couple chapters ago, narratively speaking. I don't know how many days it was, okay? But they got commissioned way before this demon-possessed man. They forgot who Jesus was in their first attempt to like, have a trial. They forget, and they accuse God of being merciless. But yet it's the formerly demon-possessed man that says, Please, can I go with you? Can I please follow you? He says, No, go to your own people and tell them what the Lord has done and the mercy he's had on you. And he goes and he does it. We preached last week. 
that we must indiscriminately sow the gospel seed. We must indiscriminately share the good news with people. And, and I told you one of the easiest ways to do it is use your story. What is Jesus? I wish I'd have known it or I'd have said it. But look at what Jesus tells him to do. Go tell them what the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy. I tried to share the gospel twice this week. Both opportunities kind of shut in front of me. It was people that were working. Um, and right as I was trying to think, oh, I can share the gospel. <laughs> Door shut and they had to go back to work. And I was like, dang it. But hey, I was trying. And so churches, we just keep trying. As we keep going to our own people, and we tell them what the Lord has done for us and the mercy he's had on us in the midst of our sins. Guys, people are going to start getting saved and we're going to look up like we saw in the last passage. We're going to go, how did this massive harvest of people show up? I don't care about numbers, but I want to see the entire city of Barnon and all of the Casper area come to Jesus. And I know you do too. And so what we see in this last passage, the irony that the formerly demon-possessed man's a better disciple than the 12 disciples that have been walking with Jesus now, narratively speaking, for four chapters. And so what we see here is that because Jesus has control over the natural and the spiritual worlds, the disciple must proclaim that power in what Jesus has done for them. That's our job, church. Our job is to go out into the world and admit to them, hey, in the midst of all these chaotic circumstances that were overwhelming my life, I had peace because Jesus was with me. And in the midst of my spiritual afflictions and my sin and my struggles, the only way I found freedom was through Jesus who was with me. Jesus who comes to us in the midst of our shame and brokenness and uncleanness and he sets us free. And so churches, I think, how can we respond to this passage? Well, one, let's first respond with humility that we're going to mess up and let's try to mess up less. Let's try and stop forgetting who Jesus is in the midst of our storms. And in whatever circumstances that have you overwhelmed, remember that Jesus isn't fretting we know that the Bible says God does not sleep, okay? So I'm not disagreeing with the theological truth of the scriptures. But for the sake of the illustration, you might think your life is capsizing and you're drowning, but Jesus is really taking a nap right beside you. And he's like, why are you stressed out, man? We're good. I got you. And then as we look at the spiritual afflictions of our friends that are lost and we think they're, they're past help. No, just try and introduce them to Jesus. As we think about our sin struggles, you won't stay held in the chains and the shackles forever. Jesus will set you free. Keep fighting your sin. Keep one step at a time. Fight that sin. And one of these days you'll look up and you'll realize you're running with no chains and no shackles. And you'll go, oh my gosh, he set me free. That's how I think we can respond, church but I'd be doing a disservice to the person that's in here tonight that's never repented of their sins, which means turn away from, who's never turned away from their sins and followed Jesus. So what I want to say is you saw that the wind and the waves obeyed Jesus. You saw that an army of demons obeyed Jesus. Why aren't you obeying Jesus? Philippians chapter 2 verses 10 and 11 says 
that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. So if you're here tonight or you're watching this on live stream or you're watching it years from now and you're watching the video, whatever, if you have rejected Jesus, I just have to be honest with you to say, <clears throat> you can kneel before him now and ask him to set you free. You can kneel before him now and ask him to calm the waves and the storm that are crashing into your life. And you can be set free and saved. Or at your death, you will stand before this Jesus and you will still kneel. If you kneel now, you walk away free. If you kneel after you've rejected him at your death, you will walk away into eternal damnation in a place called hell, forever regretting that you didn't kneel before it was too late. I'm not trying to scare you into hell. I'm trying to help you to see that Jesus brings heaven to the hell on this earth and he wants to save you. He wants to calm the wind and the waves. He wants to set you free from your spiritual afflictions. What is it that's stopping you from kneeling? I'm going to ask Ashley to come forward as we prepare to sing in response to what we've heard. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. If you're here tonight and you've heard this message, church, we have some responsibilities. We've got to remember him in our storms. We've got to trust him amidst our spiritual struggles. And we've got to go and proclaim that power. But if you're here tonight and you've never kneeled down and asked Jesus to set you free, you've never knelt down and then turned to follow Jesus and proclaim who he is, then tonight will you kneel. Tonight will you surrender your life to Christ. If while I've preached about Jesus to you, your eyes have been opened, you've recognized you're a sinner, you've recognized that you're afflicted, and you've let your circumstances make you distrust in God, but tonight you say, I want to believe. I want to kneel down before the Son of the Most High God. I want to follow Him. If that's you, I'm going to invite you to talk to God through prayer with me. I'm going to say some things, and I'd like you to repeat it to yourself or under your breath. Again, if you're ready to turn from your sins and start following the Savior, with heads bowed and eyes closed, I'm going to ask you to pray this prayer with me. Jesus, I'm unable to save myself. Jesus, I kneel before you tonight. I can't calm the wind. I can't break the chains of my spiritual affliction. I'm unable to set myself free. I have denied you in my life. But you can set me free. Your death, burial, and resurrection make my forgiveness possible. Forgive me, Jesus. 
let me come with you. I will proclaim your power and the mercy you've had on me to everyone I can. Let me follow you, Jesus, for all my days. In Jesus' name we pray. Now with heads bowed and eyes closed, if you prayed that prayer, there's a pin and a connection card in your seat. I want you to write your name. I want you to check that top box that says, I decided to follow Jesus today. There's an offering box in the back, and I want you to drop it in there, and I want to I give you a call this week and talk to you about what it means to follow Jesus and proclaim his goodness. Now let me pray for our church, and then we'll sing in response to what we've heard. Lord, we come before you and we thank you. We admit, God, that far too often our circumstances cause us to question you. Instead of having faith, we insult you. Forgive us. Help us to trust in your sovereignty amidst chaos. Help us to trust in your control amidst our spiritual afflictions. And help us, Lord, to proclaim your power and the mercy you've had on us to everyone as often as possible. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.